You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Andrew Curran, Andy, as he prefers to be called. Um, Andy is the William Armstrong Professor of Humanities at Wesleyan University, um, the land of the Gilmore Girls. And <laughs> his first book, he his first book was published in 2001, and it's called Sublime Disorder, Physical Monstrosity in Diderot's Universe. So you're not only Diderot's biographer, but you give him the entire universe. You, his second book appeared in 2011, The Anatomy of Blackness, Science and Slavery in an Era of Enlightenment. But I'm going to talk to um, I'm going to talk to Andy today about his latest book, Diderot and the Art of Thinking Freely, which came out in 2019. You have um, Andy, you've written for very various publications you have various prizes grants and i don't know what you are a big cheese and um you are i won't i won't go into all of them but um i will link to all your details in the show notes and you are currently working on a new project with henry louis louis gates which is a study of 16 unpublished manuscripts on the subject of blackness. And I think in an interview you referred to this as the invention of, of race. So that's that's going to be your new project. But I haven't read any of your books about race, so I'm going to focus on the Diderot book. And I'm probably more qualified to give this interview than most because I did my um, PhD on the 18th century. And it was my specialty subject when I was an academic but I left academia in 2006, so my memories may be somewhat hazy. And I, I have read most of Diderot's works, but it was longer ago than one should admit as a lady. It was decade, We're talking decades. Um, so I was, it was uh, really fun to, it was really fun to revisit the Enlightenment, my favorite period of history again, through the book. Welcome, Andy. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So I guess we could start with how you first became interested in, in Diderot and why you specifically, of the, of the many really interesting Enlightenment figures, what it was that attracted you to Diderot specifically? Well, I think that uh, Diderot is quite different uh, from most Enlightenment thinkers. I and mean, I really love the Enlightenment. I love delving into Voltaire, Madame de Châtelet, and Madame de Graffigny, and uh, Helvetius, and so on and so forth, and the English Enlightenment thinkers as well. But I think Diderot is kind of an extreme data point in so many ways in that uh, first thing he 
doesn't write for his own generation. He writes for posterity, which is to say that many of the things that he wrote, many of the most interesting things he wrote, in fact, most of the most interesting things he wrote didn't appear until well after his death. I thought that was really very interesting. And I think psychologically, he's also a lot like uh, uh, Montaigne in that he's a lifelong friend. You can always uh, look into Diderot and find great things that uh, are very useful in your own life. Hmm. I feel exactly that way about Samuel Johnson. Mm-hmm. But in a, in a sense, they're opposites because Johnson wrote all almost all his work as ephemera to be published at, at that moment. But yes, whilst Diderot was, he was extraordinarily prolific. I was quite stunned um, reading the biography as to just how much writing he produced and how much of it also was, as you say, was was squirreled away and kept in drawers for posterity. And some of it was also ghostwriting. Yeah, he's... Uh... He is really just an astonishing polymath and polygraph. I mean, there are a lot of polygraphs during the 18th century. Certainly Voltaire is a polygraph. He was a, a, a dramatic author and historian and so on and so forth. So is Rousseau. But I think that Diderot was somewhat special in that he wrote, you know, 7,000 articles for the encyclopedia in, in, an, in an, just a, an astonishing number of different fields. And then assimilating that information, he was able to transcend his era and write about art and write about natural history and and write about politics in a way that simply wasn't being done during his generation. So he was really uh, leapfrogged his own generation in so many different ways. And and one of the things I I said in the the acknowledgments that it's difficult to write about a genius when you're not one. And certainly in order to master all the things or get a good handle on all the things that Diderot did, uh, took a lot of time. And there was a lot of self-doubt because, for example, I'm not an art historian. And yet I had to delve deeply into 18th century art history in order to write the art chapter. A similar thing could be said about politics. While that may be closer to my own kind of you know basic affinities, it certainly was difficult to kind of jump in there and and try to master what exactly was going on in politics in the 1760s and 1770s, et cetera. It was a really interesting task to do this. I was was struck by a few things about him as I was um, reading through your your biography. One, as you highlighted, is um, his, how much of his work he wrote for posterity, and that perhaps enabled him to be exceptionally daring. He is, I wouldn't say that his work is more radical than that of other Enlightenment thinkers I know. So Rousseau and Thomas Paine and people like that are also very radical. Diderot is very willing to question even his own beliefs. So a lot of his works are take the form of dialogues. And often the interlocutor, one of the people in the dialogue is himself. And the, his interlocutor is someone who is radically challenging Diderot's own preciously held beliefs. I think that's interesting. Yes, certainly. He, he said that one writes most effectively from the grave, which is one of these superb aphorisms that just kind of fell uh, from his pen. And, and certainly in terms of his radicality, it's really interesting to kind of evaluate him against people or compared to someone like Thomas Paine or Rousseau. Certainly Rousseau was 
a, a, a political radical in many ways in that he you know, questioned the fundamental you know, uh, uh, political rights and, the, uh, and political authority you know, during the Ancien Régime in a way that had never been done before, essentially giving a voice to the downtrodden. And uh, Diderot certainly shared a lot of those different um, kind of political feelings, particularly toward the, 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 the latter years of his life. And yet there are things that he does that are, are perhaps more radical than anyone uh, during the time period for the, sa- for the reason you actually cite, which is to say that, you know, he said that skepticism is the first step toward truth in everything he does and in his own life as well. And what has never been questioned uh, can certainly not be seen as a, as a truth. These are kind of great words to live by these days as well. And although he was somebody working on the encyclopedia, which is designed, as you know, to put forward uh, uh, an accurate snapshot of the era's knowledge and also to reform uh, the, the era's ideas. At the same time, in his private writings, he was thinking about things like homosexuality and, uh, and natural history and writing about this in a way that had never been done before, as you said, from a kind of dialogical point of view. And so, for example, the question of homosexuality is fascinating. Starting off as a materialist, an atheist, he kind of looks at this whole question. He says, well, if it exists in nature, then it can't be uh, abnormal. So he's looking in terms of naturalization and normalization in a way that really is not done during his time period. He rejects reigning conventions and starts looking at moral questions that really – uh, were seen from a, a very ethical or religious perspective, and it's very freeing from for him. And that's that's why we see things that he writes about, as I said, homosexuality that you, you simply don't see from uh, many other people. I mean, Saad will say this as well, but from a very different kind of point of view. Yes, I'm. Um, I I remember he's. Uh, so the quote I think is, "Nothing that exists can be against nature or outside nature." In your in your translation. And at another point, he says that homosexual acts sometimes simply happen because of the seductive power of beauty, <laughs> which I thought was a lovely explanation. It is lovely. Yeah, um, it is lovely. Yeah. And he also talks about, you know, he also talks frankly about masturbation at one point. This is, I think, in D'Alembert's dream mm-hmm. that one of the interlocutors in D'Alembert's dream says that both sexes can suffer from pent up sexual energy which can be released you can you can um find relief from that by giving nature a hand on occasion right you're stealing my best lines but that's exactly right <laughs> well i'm quoting from your book <laughs> i'm joking i'm joking i'm joking but that's exactly right give nature a hand is one of the greatest uh, greatest little uh, little uh, sayings from uh, delmobert's dream give nature a hand on occasion <laughs> um yeah, that that book also has um, has a description of someone masturbating, and he has this. Um, Diderot has this kind of odd. I I find it slightly mannered um, habit of writing through these very naive narrators. So the person the it's it's the the guys mistress is sitting at the end of his bed and she's describing him and he's clearly masturbating but she describes it as i do not know what he was doing his hand was suddenly hidden beneath the bedclothes <laughs> and i saw his 
His face was flushed and he made some odd noises and seemed to be panting. And then suddenly, as if, you know, some climax, great climax had passed, he fell back against the coverlet um, in, an, in, an, in a faint, or I don't remember the exact description. I'm just, I am, I am just um, ad-libbing here, but it's but something. But you did a great that, job. <laughs> and, and, and it's followed by Mademoiselle Lespinas, who was the person taking the notes at this point saying, oh, I feel a little flush. I'm not sure why. So it's, <laughs> Interesting that he's really talking about um, both sexual desire and and in the fact that that uh, this sexual desire is being communicated in a way that's not immediately obvious to everybody. So this is a great kind of ironic distance going on there. I love the fact that you bring up bring up you know his his view that uh, homosexuality is something that's justifiable not only based on the fact that it exists in nature, but he he allows for this to be. Exists given the fact that it has an aesthetic value as well. The possibility of an aesthetic value for that is a, something really interesting, and it brings also that, that underscores the the kind of the right of the individual to to do and to be who she or he wants to be. And it's really interesting whether it's giving nature a hand or whether it's um, any other aspect of human sexuality. He's fascinated by it, and also uh, allowing us. Of course, after this is published in 1830, to uh, take a look at who we are in a very different way. Of course, he's also a man of his age. In that, when his um, when his um, mistress, so I think at this point he's married to his wife, whose whose name is Toinette, yeah. and he has um, he has this much younger mistress, and he. Takes up with another mistress as well, so he has a second lover. So he has three women at this point on the go, and um, he discovers that his the second mistress, the older mistress, who um, has has another lover herself, and he cannot deal with that. Yeah, I, I think it's it is really interesting to look at Diderot, who was, as you said, a man of his time and also ahead of his time. I think philosophically. Most of the time when it came to human sexuality, he was really on the cutting edge, thinking about things that people didn't generally think about. Um, in his own life, certainly there is a, a great inconsistency in that he felt that he should be free. Uh, he felt that um, you know marriage was a constraint in many ways and that he had married poorly and, and for the wrong reasons. And then he does uh, have uh, mistresses. I should say that the, the, the mistress he took up with, uh, Sophie Vaudan, his first, um, second real love, um, is really his soulmate. And he wrote all these fabulous love letters to her. Alas, there's none coming from her, none, none from her because uh, uh, she burned them all, which is a terrible kind of silencing of this voice. Yeah. I want to read a bit from one of his letters. May I? <laughs> May I? Please do. Yeah, the, the um, love letters are really beautiful. So he had a very strange um, obsession with his lover's sister, seemed to believe his lover and her sister were having a, an incestuous relationship. And um, sorry, this, this is just the passage that I have come to. And he, he's, he's, he was both kind of sometimes titillated and sometimes tormented by jealousy about this. This is a little bit where he's writing to the lover, and he said her name was um, um, Louise Henriette Volant. He called her Sophie. We will come closer together, my beloved, 
We will come closer together, and these lips will press against those that I love. While waiting, only your sister is allowed access to your lips. This does not vex me. I might even admit that I like coming after her. As such, it seems to me that I am pressing her soul between yours and mine, like a snowflake that will melt between two burning coals. I absolutely love his uh, descriptions, the very intense descriptions of relationships. He also has these kind of very romantic, I mean, in that era, it was common to um, use this kind of language of romantic friendship, this very overblown language to describe same-sex relationships that might have been, might well have been platonic. And he also has a lot of passages like that about his about his relationship with um, Grimm, um, the scholar. I don't know where I'm going with this. I was just enjoying that <laughs> passage. Let's talk about it. It really is very interesting. First, this funny fantasy that he has of sharing his his real his soulmate with her sister. And uh, this is a really one of the kind of, again, interesting kind of curious things to think about in the context of his overall view on sex, sexuality. It's also interesting to think about it from a biographical point of view that this is happening about the same time that he's writing The Nun, which is about a nun who wants to leave her convent and uh, is writing from a first person perspective and talks about the homosexuality, the rampant homosexuality that that takes place in a convent. And so you're thinking, I'm thinking sometimes when I read, when I read a letter like that, that he's, he's uh, thinking about it in his own, own life. And he's also thinking about it as something that can happen in environments where celibacy and same sex, uh, a same sex context where this can kind of produce homosexuality in a kind of an organic kind of way. Um, yes. You know, the, the fact that he, so, so, so go ahead. Yes, he has this letter where he um, he writes to Sophie, claiming that uh, complaining that she will not let him give her an orgasm, um, which is one of the letters that you cite in the in the book, and um, that's quite that's quite amazing. I want to find it. Yeah, it's probably one of the few 18th century letters that where a man is worrying about a, a woman's pleasure. Yes. Chalk up one one more good point for Diderot there, I suppose. Um, <laughs> um, and it is very interesting that, that you know, it, you know, I try not to speculate too too much. Uh, although my publisher editor was saying you have to think about this on you know their 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 sexual relationship. Um, certainly, it seems like it had, if nothing else, really cooled down by the time this letter had was written, and given the fact that she chopped up and burned a lot of Diderot's letters as well. It's, it's very conceivable that the more physical parts of their relationship were redacted from this corpus of letters. But it is very interesting that he's, he's talking about this from this, this kind of enlightened hedonist point of view that, that, you know, pleasure is a good thing. And this is really obviously uh, enlightenment 101 that pleasure was, you know, the whipping boy of the church and it's been rehabilitated by people like Diderot and Lamétri and a lot of other people too. And this is this is part of it. He's using Enlightenment discourse on his and so, on Sophie, who of course is a very very smart woman and very aware of all these things as well. So he's trying to, you know, um, finagle, um, you know, or you know, get put, put his argument forward using uh, typical Enlightenment thinking. 
Yeah, he also describes his own, when he's talking about his own thought process, he says that um, he goes to, I can't remember which which gardens it is, um, in Paris. And he, he's, he's watching young men pursuing courtesans. And he says, mm-hmm. you know, these women are like tripping past and they have, and he describes in a very sensual way, he says, a woman with glossy hair and round buttocks and a snub nose. Um, and there will be some, some likely lad um, running after her and pursuing first one and then being rebuffed and pursuing another hither and thither as, as the women kind of appear. And he says, this is how, mm-hmm. this is how I spend my afternoons um, or or part of every day alone on a bench, but instead of pursuing women, I'm just allowing, I'm pursuing thoughts. And I, he says, in your translation, it says, my thoughts are my sluts. I thought that was an amazing uh, image. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the most famous uh, quotes. It's really very interesting, actually, to, if I could digress here for a second, to look at the translations that have been done of that, that phrase. In French, it's, mes pensées, ce sont mes catins. And that has been translated as, you know, my thoughts are my courtesans. And even in a more, uh, you know, demure or more discreet kind of way, probably in, in, you know, the 1850s or something like that. But a recent translation by the Oxford professor, Kate Tunstall, who was a great translator, uh, Kate Tunstall and and Carolyn Weirman did this together, Caroline Weirman. They said sluts because they wanted to underscore the uh, the kind of carnal aspect of Catan in the 18th century, which is, you know, sluts slash kind of prostitutes. And so the Palais Royal that you were talking about was this place, you know, and in fact, today, the Palais Royal, sometimes there are now men hanging out around there or the Tuderie, uh, you know, waiting to meet other men. This kind of feeling, this kind of um, atmosphere was certainly the case in the 18th century. And so he's describing these people running around almost robotically chasing each other. And he, as he says, you know, my, you know, my thoughts are you know, my thoughts are my courtesans. And it, it's, I think what's really also wonderful about this, it, it underscores the relationship between libertinage d'esprit et libertinage de corps, which is to say, you know, intellectual uh, liber- libertinage or liber- libertine thinking and corporeal libertine thinking as well. And these two things are certainly linked for Diderot. And it also talks, it also, uh, it shows how he thought he would, he, people said that his, he didn't have thoughts, his Thoughts had him, which is really a great description of this this mind. It jumped mm. from subject to subject, you know. After writing seven thousand articles and editing thirty thousand articles, and he he really was kind of a he was a hyperlinker in his own brain. Uh, people were astonished in the way he talked, the way he thought, the way he could just uh, bowl you over with his ideas. Voltaire said about him that he. He was looking forward to meeting Diderot for ages and ages, and he finally met him, and he said, the guy is just not a great conversationalist. He's a talker. He's a talker. Yes, yes. I, I think you you describe him at some point as exhausting, or not for yourself, but obviously you never met him, but uh, people who met him in real life found him exhausting um, because he just talked at them. Yeah, I, th- I mean, he certainly, uh, he's not... I mean, he criticized uh, or he admired in, in a certain level geniuses who were so um, had such a such a, dis, a distinct skill that they 
we're not subject to the same rules of morality and ethics as anybody else. And he wasn't like that. Um, he wasn't the great composer Rameau. He wasn't, uh, you know, like a Mozart he, who would be free, or Voltaire even, free from the normal morality. He was definitely thinking about normal morality, and he certainly was very kind and generous to lots of different people, to a fault, in fact. Mm, but, mm. But, it's, but it's certainly true that, you know, once his mind got going, it was, you know, you just couldn't stop it. And so uh, if you don't have the same kind of horsepower, I mean, you would you just very difficult to participate as you would watch him talk about, you know, Egyptian, Egyptian religions, and then, you know, move quickly into art history and then bounce around to physics. I mean, it's, it's absolutely exhausting and, and also wonderful. And that's the way he was. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 he is a, he is a fundamentally very likable uh, character, especially if we compare him with someone like Rousseau, who was such a bizarre, um, paranoid, and frankly, very unpleasant man. Um, I mean, I would certainly have divorced Diderot, but I would have divorced most of these uh, historical figures. Um, But he was, he, he had a lot of loyalty. um, And he seemed to, considering the kind of reputation he has had in his afterlife for being a provocateur, he was really quite careful to tread this tightrope um, and try to stay just within the bounds of respectability so that so that he could get some of the work published that he wanted to get published and everything else was kept secret for posterity, as he said. Yes, and a couple of really good uh, um, things you bring up here. First, it's, it's I, I think, um, you know, Diderot's relationship with women, as I said, is, is quite fraught. But he was, you know, compared to many people, he didn't kind of go in for what he called a partie de bouche, kind of debauchery and running around a kind of whoring, essentially, as his friends would, would do. And he was essentially kind of monogamous kind of guy. Um, and I think he just was very sad that he had met the, the wrong person and really stayed with Sophie for a long, long time, even though they didn't have a, the kind of physical relationship that he had hoped for. Right. Well, she gave him orgasms, but he did wasn't, she didn't let him give her orgasms, or at least that's what he says in that one letter that we have. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much what we can extrapolate from that, which is kind of funny. And we have to imagine when they first got together, and again, I'm just digressing here, but it's fun, um, that he, he was like a high school kid sneaking around because, you know, she was a spinster and he you know, would sneak up the servant's staircase and go to her room while her mother was, you know, you know in, the, in the same apartment. So it was a really kind of funny type arrangement to begin with. And then ultimately he ingratiated himself with the family and ultimately they stuck a, a, a bust of Diderot in their salon. <laughs> so he, he redeemed himself. And that brings up the respectability that you were talking about. Yeah, that's one of the great uh, tensions in Diderot's life. The fact that he had written these scurrilous and libertine, well, libertine kind of novel called the the Bijou Indiscret, the Indiscreet Jewels, which is essentially a precursor to the vagina monologues in many ways, um, not ideologically, but in, in that he was giving the floor to women's sexual organs to talk about female sexuality, good and bad, right? So that was very interesting, and that was seen as a real piece of smut. He wrote this in 1748 when he was 34 years old, and this was uh, something he was quite embarrassed about, and people made fun of him about this for a long, mm. long time. And yet at the same time, you know, 25, 30 years later, he will write new 
highly pornographic chapters for this whole thing. At the same time, he is trying to redeem himself publicly by becoming a great uh, um, dramatic actor or dramatic um, uh, playwright. Sorry, a playwright, Mm. I'm thinking here in French. So he, he wrote these bourgeois dramas, which were designed on one level to push back the frontiers of knowledge and think about different, a different kind of a different type of theater. At the same time, these were quite staid, uh, somewhat conservative stories about uh, bourgeois families with kind of drippingly sentimental, happy endings. And so it's not the, the high point of his, of his kind of literary career. We don't teach these, these, um, no, these thank plays. God. I've read the revolutionary <laughs> time in many ways. Oh, you read them? Wow, that's really good. Um, the revolutionary at the time, um, but they really are uh, not really terribly interesting. But from a, again, from a biographical perspective, I think it's quite interesting to speculate that one of the things he's doing here is trying to establish himself in the theater, which is you know far more important than, for example, writing a novel. It's really the, the area that made Voltaire super famous, and Rousseau too. Rousseau started with writing theater and opera. Yeah, uh, well, Diderot and my my personal enlightenment hero, Samuel Johnson, have in common that they were both very brilliant men who were absolutely horrible playwrights. <laughs> That's right. I could actually just talk about his, his attitudes towards sexuality for this entire podcast, and I'll try to get off it at some point. <laughs> um, but since one of my favorite subjects anyway... Um, he has this even this extraordinary passage in his notes on painting mm-hmm. where he imagines um Jesus at the wedding the um the Cana wedding where water is turned into wine mm-hmm. and he says that he imagines that one he he says that Jesus got drunk on his own his own um wine mm-hmm. miraculously produced wine and was lying around and he was in a he he was faced with a d- dilemma as to whether or not to have sex with one of the bridesmaids or with St. John. And at one point, he was simultaneously caressing the breasts of the bridesmaids and the buttocks of of the saint. Um, So you can see why he kept this for posterity. Uh, um, Yeah, it's interesting that the notes on painting uh, actually were, it's true that uh, these were not published for a long time, uh, I think they were published in the 1790s, if my memory is, co- if I remember correctly. But it's it's uh, this brings up uh, the fact that you know he was sending some really incendiary and interesting and, and scandalous things. This really really scandalized people. This this particular passage because it it brings in this body sexuality into you know scripture. I mean, it's really kind of unthinkable in, in many. <laughs> but this this was sent out actually to uh, 15. Um, members of the European, uh, different European monarchs, you know, um, including Catherine the Great in this manuscript only journal called the Literary Correspondence. So you can imagine these people paid a premium to have Diderot and Grimm uh, supply the news of the day from Paris. Paris is the center of the civilized world, quote unquote, at the time. And if you're, you know, hanging out in St. Petersburg, you wanted to find out what was going on. And so they, uh, they hired uh, Grimm initially, and then Grimm hired Diderot to produce all this information. And one of the things that Grimm asked Diderot to do was go and take a look at the, the, bi, the, the, uh, the, the biennial salon taking place at the Louvre. 
which happened every, um, you know, 1767, 1769, so on and so forth. And indeed, Rowe does this. And it's in becoming very familiar with painting and speaking and, and hanging out with the painters in the Louvre, which was essentially a, an artist colony at the time. You know, occasionally he just goes off in the same way he was such a great talker and he produces these astonishing um, um, interactions, almost these kind of staged psychological interventions in the paintings themselves. And so this is what's happening in the notes on painting as well, where you see him actually interacting with the painting, participating. And in here he's kind of telling a, a nasty little story about what's going on there. Well, I mean, a fascinating story. It's the notes on painting are uh Yes, are really amazing. He sort of takes the painting as a kind of springboard for telling his own, yeah, for his for his own um, fiction. So he imagines himself as one of the people within the painting. So when he's describing some of these big historical history painting scenes, rather than describing them as an art critic would from outside, where he's he's talking about. What you see is you're looking at the painting from the gallery. He imagines what would it be like if you were among the crowd there in the painting itself? What would you see and feel and experience? Um, it's it's a, a a really lovely um, way of doing the art criticism. It's a very vibrant approach. Yeah, it's interesting that Diderot actually coined the expression, the, you know, the fourth wall in speaking about theater. And he actually was a great advocate of the fourth wall um, in theater. He wanted to make sure that, that the you know, com- um, actors were perfectly naturalistic in the way they interacted with the text that they were, they were doing. But when it came to art and art criticism, as you point out, it was entirely different where he would just jump into the painting sometimes and take a walk and talk about the paintings themselves. And this is, of course, really important at a time when the paintings he is describing to the same 15 monarchs all around Europe were not inside the literary correspondence. So this was not like an art history uh, textbook where you could, you could interact and see the painting and then move on to the criticism. He was actually conjuring up the painting. He figured out a, a way of talking about these, these works that brought them alive to the viewers and that is, you know, whether he's talking about Fragonard or Chardin or Vernet, he really, uh, you know, as, as you said, just jumps into the painting. And this works for also for, you know, painters he didn't like as well. Uh, he would, you know, uh, if uh, somebody did a bad portrait, he would say, you know, listen to the portrait. He's you know, <laughs> opening up his mouth saying, you really stink. And so he would, <laughs> he would, say, he would make the person who was who actually portrayed in the painting lambast the uh, the painter who had produced the the uh, the failed painting so it's very very funny how he did all this so there are some really famous examples in Fragonard which are too hard to describe i think it's best to, to read those things but you know he took a nice long stroll with with uh, uh, in vernet's paintings and a series of paintings and it's really this kind of dreamy dreamy uh, uh mindscape that you're walking through and you can recognize the paintings and and uh um, you can see some of these paintings if you kind of piece them together. That his his views of, you know, great great uh, shipwreck and you know storms, um, really really interesting how he did that. So although his to come back to this fourth wall thing, although his own his own plays were were so dreadful, and what he was trying to do with the plays was quite interesting because he wanted to create a bourgeois 
form of tragedy, kind of death of the salesman avant la lettre, with um, mm-hmm. get uh, to get away from the kind of fixed characters, which had come from I'm not I can't remember what it's called in French tradition, come from something like the Commedia dell'arte Italian tradition, yep. where you mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. different types like the servant, the jealous husband, um, mm-hmm. the coquettish widow. Um, Etc. And they all had these fixed roles. They were stereo, two-dimensional stereotypes. And he wanted to move towards something more naturalistic. And he also suggested, instead of the, this very self-conscious way of acting, which if anybody has seen um, Restoration plays, you might be familiar with this kind of. I mean, you obviously have, but this this very this witty self-conscious kind of style in which. Um, the actors are not really addressing the lines to each other. They are said for the for the benefit of the audience. Right. That um, he suggested that the actor should pretend that the audience were not there at all and try to deliver the lines completely to each other and for each other. And I think that Stanislavski, you mentioned, uh, said that Diderot was influential on his thought. Yeah, it's, it is it is really one of the most interesting parts and contradictory parts of his legacy. As you said, you know, it's difficult to stomach uh, one of Diderot's plays. And, and I've got a lot of friends who study these things. Whenever I say this, they, you know, they, they really think I'm a jerk. But it's, I mean, it's true. I mean, aesthetically, it's oh, just you not didn't that- write them. Why are you the jerk? <laughs> <laughs> because they, they, love, they love them. They, they, they see the, I think the historical import of the plays infuses them for them. And they find they take aesthetic pleasure as well. Wow, so I they, thought they were just dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> you and I, you and I agree, understood. But they really are, um, as you point out, um, very, very interesting in many ways. You, you were you were talking about death of a salesman, but they're also kind of sitcoms in many ways as well. Um, if you get rid of these fixed uh, uh, types um, um, and you bring real people on stage. So you don't, you're, you're rejecting two genres at the same time, you know, aristocratic tragedy where the characters have to be noble. They have to be of a certain, you know, or of a certain uh, um, social class. And you can't have, you know, silly kind of uh, comedy level or poor people or common people on stage having tragic things happen to them. You know, the social class and genre were very much linked together. And this is a funny thing where he brings together comedy and tragedy on a certain level. He never really did that, but he talked about the, the possibility of doing something that would be radically different. And the, the big play for which he was actually quite famous is called The Father of the Family. Mm. And that it's almost like a typical kind of a comedy type thing, except the characters are, you know, supposedly real people with real emotions. They are, it's a naturalistic acting. And uh, the values are quite bourgeois as well. So the father of the family is is a precursor to things like the marriage of Figaro and uh, the fact that Diderot is, is, is saying that we should put real people on stage, you know, notaries, uh, lawyers, um, and this, this uh, social class kind of manifesto on a certain level uh, shows up later in the uh, century. I said the marriage of Figaro, but there's a bunch of lesser known plays like the um, the, the vinegar's wheelbarrow, right? The vinegar maker's wheelbarrow. So we're really talking about a member of the working class and the story associated with that. And so this is a real, a real 
uh, innovation, uh, an ideological uh, innovation on a lot. Well, that, a it's a level. very um, it's a very classic uh, Enlightenment thing. So in the in the with the novel, for example, um, at the end of the 17th century, beginning of the 18th century, um, well, uh, most most um, of what we would think of as as novel fiction was actually romances, and it was about the fates of princes and princesses. So it was these grand, emotionally charged events happening to these high-born noble people. So there was a kind of disregard of um, a, a sort of snobbery, a kind of snobbish assumption that for something to be tragic and moving, it had to happen to someone who was high-born. That that was kind of part of the tragedy, and when bad things happened to more humble people, that was more kind of laughable or comic, and that really changed with the rise of the novel. Especially Richardson was especially um, influential in that. Samuel Richardson and his novel Pamela, which is this fifty-five-year-old author um, writing his very first work, and he wrote it in the first person as a 15-year-old servant girl who is being sexually harassed. Um, mm -hmm. And it's this kind of, um, and it's written at huge length and it goes into her psychology in great depth. And it's this new focus on, on emotionally intense things being portrayed in literature as happening to humble people. Yeah, that's a that's really a great point, and it, it allows us to talk about Diderot in, in so many different ways. He was really drawn to Richardson, as you know, and uh, used the, the 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 realism that he found Richardson as as the point of departure for his own first person memoir, written from the perspective of a woman, uh, and that's the the nun, and she also has all sorts of trials and tribulations. And, told from that naive that you brought up earlier, naive point of view, which makes it so interesting. The nun is such an intense, um, such a kind of brooding and intense and sinister and sort of claustrophobic um, work. Well, claustrophobic in a literal, in a literal sense, it's in right. the cloisters. I'm just about to teach it starting tomorrow. So it's, it's definitely in my mind. So the whole thing started off as a joke, which is really interesting. He he wrote from the perspective of this this woman who wanted to leave religious life. This was based on the story of somebody who had actually done this and had and her her complaints had been uh, received warmly by a friend of Diderot, and this and, and uh, he was very sympathetic to her cause, and so. In order, his friend moved to the country, and he decided that the best way to get him back was to do this mystification, as they called it at the time, and write to him from the perspective of the same nun. And so he's writing with his friends, Madame de Depinay and Grimm, and they send off these letters, and he's writing back, etc. And after a while, he said, "You know, this is really moving." And we have to remember that his sister was uh, in a con was a was a nun. Uh, in the Ursulines convent in, in Lanc, and she died there. He had been locked up in a, in a monastery in, in Lanc, where he grew up. And also, he was in prison for three months in Vincennes prison. So he knew a lot about both solitary confinement and probably getting beaten up as well when he was in that monastery. And so he is able to channel a lot of his own experience 
and write about this from a very, very emotional point of view, this first-person point of view. And you're right, it's extremely claustrophobic. It also produces this typology of different kinds of of the pressure and how the pressure creates different kinds of people in different situations, which is to say, uh, in one convent, you have a sadistic mother superior, and in another convent, you have the lesbian mother superior, and it's interesting how this energy, this sexual energy, and he was fascinated by sexual energy. We talked about the, you know, give nature a hand in a place where you, you might give nature a hand in a convent. But if you don't do that, then you're going to be doing things which might be uh, not considered uh, normal, at least in the context of this book. And so he is uh, you know, talking about the problems of celibacy, uh, you know, in, in 1760 to 1780. It's really pretty interesting how he's he diagnoses the fact that these places are should be really if things were run in his in his um, in a way that would be you know, correspond to his his view of the world it should be easy to go into go into a religion a, a convent and hard and I'm sorry it should be um, hard to get in mm. to religious life and easy to get out and exactly you know going into a convent or becoming a um, you know, becoming a, a, a monk or a nun was forever, generally, at the time. It's very difficult to get out. And so there are these forced vocations because parents would force their kids to, to, if they didn't have any money, to go into the, you know, the priesthood or become a monk or a nun was quite common at the time. Saved money. I also wanted to make sure we highlight Diderot's attitudes towards um, slavery were also very much ahead of his time. I I know only a few Enlightenment figures who were unequivocally and clearly anti-slavery. Johnson, of course, my hero Johnson was was one of them. And Alexander von Humboldt was also wrote a lot of very explicitly and Mm -hmm. clearly condemnatory um, things and um, Mm -hmm. um, to many of the American founding fathers. But Diderot's views are also quite outspoken and ahead of his time. And he expressed those um, partly in a work which became very famous and which he had, a lot of which he had written, he'd made major contributions to that work, especially the the more radical parts of it, but as a ghostwriter. So uh, the, the big question here is Diderot and slavery and, and how he rela- related to the question of slavery. And I think we need to kind of jump back to the 17, early 1750s when he's starting the encyclopedia. At this point, he really is not thinking about this too much, and no one really is. The big question is constructive metaphysics and God, and so he's getting in trouble for that kind of thing at the time, thinking about religion and its relationship to people's lives. That's, his, that's really his primary concern, as it was a concern for Voltaire at the same time. But in the mid-1750s and late 1750s in particular, a number of thinkers start questioning slavery. The first one is Montesquieu in 1750, uh, in, in the spirit of the laws in 1748. And then Elvisus and, and, and Voltaire and a number of other people are talking about the abuses of slavery. Voltaire is a racist, I would, uh, and I use that term very carefully because <laughs> um, he is um, this is a kind of a footnote. He was really uh, the emblem of the kind of contradiction of the Enlightenment, which is to say he thought that Africans were inferior, a separate species, and yet he was against the slave trade. Diderot is not like that at all. By the time he starts focusing on the slave trade, which is after the encyclopedia, 
Now, there's a couple of articles that are anti-slavery articles in, inside the encyclopedia, but as you say, he really gets into this in the 1770s when he takes over or becomes a ghostwriter for Abbe Rinals, R-A-Y-N-A-L, The History of the Two Indies, which was this international blockbuster bestseller. It went into 30 or 50 editions or something like that. Hugely influential in the, uh, in the North America and then the United States after 1776. Everyone was reading it, and also hugely influential in France as well. There are three editions of this, and what's great about following Diderot's uh, evolution on this question is that he rewrites himself over the, over the years. And he certainly starts off with a pretty um, strong condemnation of slavery, and he's interacting with other thinkers at the time, kind of grabbing their ideas, making them his own, and then popping them back into the text. And then he goes much, much farther And what's really interesting is he understands that for an effective anti-slavery argument to be made, you need to refute the race, racial justifications, which are becoming increasingly prevalent and, and, and uh, uh, strong during the 1770s. And so in the 1770 edition of this book, you see uh, an anti-slavery discourse next to kind of racialized thinking. And by 1780, the third and final edition that Diderot participates in, He's going to refute all that racialized kind of thinking at the same time. He also puts forward the idea of the Code Blanc, unlike the, which is a kind of the equivalent of the Code Noir, which was the set of laws that the, the French used to regulate slavery in the colonies and said that a day will come, my friends, where the, coloner, the, 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 the colonizers and the planters will be put to the sword by a black Spartacus. And this is, you know, nine or 10 years before Toussaint Louverture does this in Saint-Domingue, present-day Haiti. So he was really prescient in a lot of ways, and it's really a fascinating read to see what he was doing for slavery. And this is very, very important and unrecognized because we didn't even figure out that he was this ghostwriter for real until the, 17, until the 1950s when a manuscript was found. <laughs> so it's one of those uh, you know, time bombs that we found out about much later. Yeah, there's absolutely no none of the kind of Condes condescending attitude that I find in some other Enlightenment figures when they're talking about uh, slavery. Even people who are talking against slavery, um, there's a lot of kind of rhetoric about not doing harm to these somehow simpler, more innocent, more childlike, there's a noble savage mm -hmm. metaphor going on. And he just doesn't have that at all. I, I don't get any sense that he has a kind of at least from the last uh, iterations of what he wrote. I don't have this sense that he feels this kind of radical difference between white men here, black men there. So we had to take a brief um, break from this podcast for technical reasons. And now we are back. It's a gorgeous, sunny spring afternoon here in Buenos Aires, and Andy and I both have our tea, and we're ready to continue. Welcome back, Andy. It's a pleasure to be back. So one of the discoveries that I, I made um, reading your book, I've read, I, I've read Diderot's um, literary works, but I had never spent any time with his letters, and they are uh, absolutely beautiful. I want to just find a piece one moment. He, he's extremely frank and very 
very open, very warm, and very relatable. And I was struck by this particular passage. He says, I think this is a letter to Grimm, or maybe even to Rousseau before their friendship went sour, as everyone's friendship with Rousseau did, because basically he was kind of a wanker. (laughs) (laughs) So the letter says, um, my letters are a fairly accurate history of my life. It would require a lot of courage to hide nothing. One might more readily admit to plotting a great crime than to a small, vile and murky, unintelligible feeling. It might cost less to write in one's diary, I desired the throne at the expense of the one who now sits on it, than to write, One day when I was in the public bath among a large number of young men, I noticed a man of surprising beauty and could not prevent myself from approaching him. I thought I think that's just a wonderful, um, psychologically astute and vulnerable passage. It really is amazing. And this was actually uh, to Sophie at one point. Mm. Um, and he is, uh, there's so many things come up here. Um, I think the first is the fact that what I love about this is the the, the thing that you wouldn't want to admit in public is regicide or questioning political authority. This is very dangerous. You spend time in jail for that. But he said, I'm willing to admit that, perhaps. But it's what's really difficult to admit are those secret, secret desires we have. And here he's talking about uh, homosocial or homosexual attraction in the baths, probably when he's a kid in Langres, which is really pretty amazing. And I think it gets back to what we were talking about yesterday, the fact that this is a man who allows for uh, homosexuality or these hidden desires to, to crop up and to be given space on stage in his own mind because he's just willing to do things that most people are not willing to do because he's a materialist, because he's an atheist, because he's looking at nature as the, the, the space within which he makes up his ideas and his morality. And we should bear in mind, so when was it, until when was homosexuality a capital crime in France? Because it was punishable by by death by burning, um, right? Until... Yeah, so, um, you know, that the different governments and um, administrations react to homosexuality in different ways. And if you're caught doing something at a time where people are very conservative, it's a much more dangerous time to be caught doing that. The last time somebody was executed for homosexuality, I believe, was in 1750 or in 1755, right in front of what is now the Hôtel de Ville, the, uh, the town or the city hall in Paris. There was a big place called the Place de Grève. And they, I think they, they did burn, but after they first tortured uh, uh, two uh, homosexual men, who, were, who had been caught, um, apparently, in the act. And it was, uh, uh, so it really was a, a time of incredible persecution for so-called deviant uh, sexuality. Mm. Yeah, but I think it's, it's not really about that, is it? It's not about the kind of punishment risks. It's about sort of what, uh, what we're willing to admit to versus what we're not. The, the kinds right. of, yeah. the sorts of, sins or um, 
misdemeanors that we consider to be heroic and we would be proud of and the things we would not be proud of. You know, I would I would also much rather admit that I joined some white supremacist group than that I had kind of made a fool of myself pursuing some hapless guy I had a crush on. Um. <laughs> well, it really is funny how our minds work. And he, he is, is an incredible perception of the way the mind works. He thought the mind was like a gigantic harpsichord that played itself uh, or a, a, a big beehive where ideas are coming in and hooking into the hive and then flying off. He really believed that um, you know, the mind was this amazing, an amazing playground, and it does allow him to think about things. We just, you know, these kind of incredible psychological insights that uh, really strike home. You talk about in the book about his materialism. He was also, I think, um, he seems to have been a non-believer in free will, which is a topic that I've written um, several. Uh, uh, essays about this, and I might link to them in the show notes, because I have to blow my own trumpet. Otherwise, that thing will just rust in a corner. Nobody else is going to is going to blow it for me. And um, I'm I will be John Rosen and Ben Burgess are going to come on the podcast. I think next week I'll be interviewing them on this topic. But he's he's absolutely a materialist. He doesn't believe there's a life after death, and he's a possibly a determinist. But it, he's extremely cheer, cheerful about those things. Um, he's not. It's it's uh, very unusual because most atheists from this period are reluctantly and gloomily convinced that there is no God. But he seems to find this his his own materialism very liberating. Yeah, there's a wonderful book by Elizabeth de Fontenay. I'm not sure you know her, called Enchanted Materialism. And that's, of course, a kind of oxymoron that talks about, that reflects the idea that there is something really wonderful and spiritual about his materialism, despite the fact that he is believes in the fundamental uh, uh, materiality of the world, that we must derive our, our rules and our understanding of the universe based only on material explanations. But you're right. He he believes that there's something kind of elemental and almost Lucretian in in the world, and that the the wonder of life is life itself. There is no kind of transcendent transcendent meaning. He believed that we as individuals and we as a species are, are are fleeting expressions of matter. But what a wonderful expression of matter we are! How fascinating we are! He thought that without humans, this whole world would be a big, sad, and mute spectacle, as he said. And there are times, to get back to the letters, where he, he, he alludes to this, this idea of uh, a wonder in life itself and a wonder in materialism. So there's one time he's talking to Sophie and he conjures up uh, the sadness of death um, on a certain level, but the, the possibility that they would be reunited in a different life, if they buried their ashes together and their atoms would fuse together and they'd grow up into a plant or something. And it's this wonderful, again, very Lucretian view of a, an atomized love that, that, that comes alive, it, 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 moving from the inanimate to the animate, uh, and yet in an entirely uh, material fashion. So that's, I, I wish I had that letter, it's such a great letter. That's yes, that's absolutely beautiful. I'm uh, Zoroastrian, as um, regular listeners to this podcast know, and um, I'm I'm very attracted to the idea of uh, vulture burials for that reason, mm. sky burials. 
I would love to. Vultures are endangered now in India, and um, it's still possible to be um, laid out in the Tower of Silence. But if I die here, there are no vultures around, and I think that's a great shame because um, I love the idea of being carried up to the heavens in the stomachs of birds. Um, <laughs> Of uh, vultures here in Connecticut, so be a good place. To oh yes, for you. Okay, I will, well, I'll come and visit. So, just in case I, I, when I start getting old, mm-hmm. I'll come by. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not quite, not quite yet. No, not um, quite. Yet. But yeah, I'd like to make a meal for the vultures at at some future stage. Good. So, um, tell uh, what, what we haven't talked about is the big public project that he was involved in and probably the thing that he is most famous for, the Encyclopédie. Can you tell us a bit about how that, how it differed from earlier encyclopedias and dictionaries as they were often called, but dictionaries were often more like what we would think of as a reference work, an encyclopedia today. It was a, a really extraordinary project, always just kind of just managing to be published, just managing to sneak past the censors. Diderot was imprisoned at one point for three months. Um, it was constantly being banned. And it was they were always trying to to tread this careful line between conformity and being so outrageous that they would be completely censored, banned and impounded. So tell us more about that. Yeah, I think the story of the encyclopedia would make a fantastic movie because there are all sorts of characters, good, bad, and indifferent, and all sorts of intrigue, as you allude to. Um, The first thing about this dictionary, as you said, is that uh, it was supposed to be just a translation, a benign reference work, a translation of an English dictionary by a guy by the name of Chambers. And Diderot was hired as a simple translator initially. But what happens is that uh, two of the first editors get fired. They scrap with the with the, uh, the, the, uh, um, the 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 publisher, and Diderot takes over. And Diderot at this time is a had been already jailed, so it's really interesting that he ends up being one of the co-editors because he was one of the bad boys of the era. He certainly had done some you know, upstanding kind of real serious translation work, work on mathematics. But at the same time, he had published two heretical books we talked about yesterday, The Letter on the Blind, an atheistic work, and also a book uh, called The The Discreet Jewels. And so by the time he gets out of jail in 1749, he's 35 years old, he's being followed by the police, people are spying on him, and yet he's the editor of the biggest publication project of the 18th century, what will become the biggest project. And he's going to use all this energy that he would have used elsewhere and he's going to sublimate it and put it into the encyclopedia. And the encyclopedia he makes with his buddy, D'Alembert, is something they call the reasoned dictionary, uh, the dictionnaire raisonné of the arts and science. And this is a very different, a real departure from, as you said, these benign uh, reference works. Certainly Bale's uh, dictionary had that kind of ideological edge, but nothing quite on the same scale as Diderot's. First, there was a sure, the, 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 the sheer uh, magnitude of the project, which went to 17 volumes of text, 74,000 articles, 
and 11 volumes of plates, where there are 3,000 illustrations. And these are huge books. These are folio editions, probably 18 inches by 12 or 15 inches. These are big books. And if you look at an encyclopedia, probably is about maybe six or eight feet on a bookshelf, weighs about 150 pounds. These are, this is really an enormous, enormous project. And mm. it starts uh, in 1751, and Diderot finishes about 1773. And as you said, it's, there's all sorts of intrigue. It's shut down twice. The Pope gets involved. The king is involved. And, and this is also big business. Uh, and so they, the administration, the king and Versailles are torn initially because they don't want to shut down this project, which would really put a lot of people out of business. And also they uh, um, want to make sure that uh, they want to control the ideas that are circulating at the time. So they're really torn. But they do shut it down in 1752 and 1758. And eventually it really needs to go underground uh, after uh, Louis XV is stabbed by a crazy man named Demia, uh, the encyclopedia is shut down. Uh, curiously enough, Demia was a uh, religious fanatic on a certain level, we think. And uh, you would think that the, the encyclopedia would not be held responsible for that, but any kind of sedition was blamed on the encyclopedia. And so Diderot carefully takes the whole project underground, and we think although we're not 100% sure that they ultimately bought a printing press near Lyon and printed the last editions there and then brought them back to Paris and distributed them in 1765 when things mellowed out a little bit. But it's really an astonishing, uh, an astonishing project. And, uh, you know, of the 74,000 articles, Diderot wrote 7,000 articles. Another guy by the name of Jocoul wrote 17,000 articles. It was just a Herculean task. And it's designed to really change the way that people thought. And this is one of the things that Diderot talked about. They saw themselves as this group of people, this, this Society des gens de lettres, who were really who really, whose intention was to really uh, revolutionize the era by synthesizing the greatest ideas and mind and, and greatest ideas of, of the time period and hiring kind of the greatest people to do so. So rather than uh, getting lexog lexographers who would simply replicate the knowledge that, that had existed before, they wanted to bring on, and they did bring on to a certain extent, some of the, uh, the big, big names of the time period. So Rousseau contributed for a while, Voltaire did as well, Beaubenton, the great naturalist, and so on and so forth. There's so many more things that one can say about the encyclopedia, the actual content, fact that there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in here. There is a, a, an amazing hyperlinking uh, uh, structure to the, the entire book, which, which is to say that sometimes Diderot would um, cite uh, an article in a way that with an ironic kind of a, a juxtaposition of ideas. Uh, they uh, were, there were certain articles which were very uh, clearly polemical, such as the article of political authority, which refuted divine right, to a certain extent, although at the end it kind of recants. They're all, and in that article starts with, no man has received the right from God to rule over um, uh, his people. And that's, of, of course, the exact opposite of what uh, Louis XV was thinking at the time. There are also a lot of other uh, anti-clerical articles that made fun of the various religious orders and really taught people to think about empiricism not as a sterile methodology that had come out of England, but a way of looking at all 
of life, using skepticism as a methodology uh, about received ideas and thinking for oneself. Mm, yeah. So I, um, some of the cross-references are used in this very cheeky way. Um, so famously, as you point out, the, the article on cannibalism um, has cross-references to the Eucharist, <laughs> which is right. which is just just brilliant. Um, and also, he has, for example, this um, article on the Franciscans, and it's his article on the uh, on the Franciscans is all about their hoods. I'm going to read from your book here because you put it very beautifully. This humorless entry begins with a history of the religious order before arriving at an in-depth description of the Cordeliers' hoods. It concludes by praising the religious order for its sobriety, piety, morals, and the great men it has produced in the service of God. The cross-reference, however, sends the reader to the article Hood, in which Diderot explains that a number of religious orders, including the Cordelier, have hotly debated the type and shape of hood that their order should wear. This fact is followed by a fabricated story detailing how a century-long war broke out between the two factions of the Cordelier sect. The first wanted a narrow hood, the others wanted it wider. The dispute lasted for more than a century with much intensity and animosity and was just barely put to an end by the papal bulls of four popes. So that's really reminiscent of Swift or Stern and it's it's kind of, it wouldn't be out of place in Monty Python. Um, that's just wonderful. <laughs> It's that's exactly right. Or Rabelais as well. The satire of the various ecclesiastical orders was both uh, something that was of great interest and it was very funny for a lot of people. And it was also deadly serious in the 18th century since the Fr France had really been ripped apart by this huge dispute between the Jansenists and the Jesuits. Uh, 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 the Jansenist, Jansenist stronghold at Port Royal, Port Royal, was wiped out and razed by the king, and this caused all sorts of uh, teeth gnashing and fighting throughout the century. In fact, uh, for a time, for for many decades, it was much more dangerous to be a, 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 an outspoken Jansenist than it was to be an outspoken philosopher. And so, when Diderot gets thrown into jail in 1749. He's there for three, four, five. He's there for three months, but he could have been there maybe for six months, possibly. But the Jansenists, who had circulated uh, various tracts against the Jesuits, were in prison for a life. So it's a very different kind of thing. It was taken very, very seriously, and we forget, I think, that that uh, the bit one of the big debates of the time was the, the, between the Jansenists and the Jesuits, who really kind of set up the French Revolution in a lot of ways as well. It really divided France. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that this period, um, I don't know how influential the encyclopedie was in this, but um, I noticed that in this period, from about the 1740s onwards, there is a real blossoming of dictionaries, encyclopedias, and also all the big uh, magazines start going. Um, and the magazines, um, which I've written about in my own book, 
um, which I'll also link to the show notes in case anybody wants to read it and push the readership up into kind of double digits, my, uh, my academic book. When the magazines began, they were just huge repositories of, of knowledge with lots of, with articles about the flora and fauna of Sri Lanka and here instructions for how to make a pair of spectacles and detailed plates showing how the, um, how the manufacturing process was handled and botany and botanic plates and astronomy. And there were lots of books also, which were brothers teaching their sisters astronomy or logic or some subject like that. Lots of kind of books aimed at at autodidacts, I would say, this general enthusiasm for miscellaneous knowledge. Yeah, there's. Um, you can't say this anymore, um, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, if we can kind of recontextualize the expression I'm about to use, um, this was a time, and this comes from Rabelais, I think, of intellectual bulimia, and bulimia, of course, in its oris- original sense, means just eating a lot. It doesn't mean purging, just bulimia. And so this is a time of just, as you say, lots of lots of knowledge being absorbed in this kind of voracious way. The encyclopedia is a perfect example of this, where this enormous collection of, of knowledge is being uh, disseminated throughout the world. There's 4,400, I think, 4,200 uh, copies of the encyclopedia, that, which is circulating. And it's also a time of increased literacy, as you point out, and a literacy for women as well. Uh, a lot of, uh, and you know way more about this than I do, but a lot of journals and magazines destined for women that uh, you know dovetail with this rise in literacy in an entire in a, an entirely different group that wasn't uh, hadn't been educated in a way that was uh, uh, really very effective mm. for a long time um, and the idea of you know manufacturing and pulling back the veil behind all sorts of hidden knowledge was really part and parcel of the encyclopedia way of looking at the world. And it, and, it, and it certainly generated a lot of people doing the same kind of thing. And you bring up the trades. I think it's important to underscore the idea of the, in the plates and the encyclopedia plates. And if you haven't seen them, um, speaking to everybody who might be listening to this, it's worth looking up online, the encyclopedia plates, the encyclopedia plates. They're the most beautiful illustrations done by a team of, of engravers and illustrators, uh, particularly a guy by the name of Goussier. There are, are, are this enormous inventory of 18th century tools, 18th century technology, 18th century manufacturing. And sometimes you see these, these plates of tools floating in space and the original referent for these tools is gone. And they're most haunting, almost surreal, beautiful uh, illustrations. But they also represent a, a certain change in the way that these uh, manufacturing processes and the people involved in them were seen. Diderot was doing this on purpose. He was trying to show that the, the bourgeois class, the petite bourgeois class, the people involved in manufacturing, were uh, really the heart and soul of France. And it wasn't the aristocracy hanging out in Versailles. This was a, something of an, an intellectual coup that was taking place in the encyclopedia that really valorized these manufacturing processes in a way that hadn't been done before. Yes. I mean, it's it's sort of a cliche to talk about the rise of the middle class in the 18th century, but this is, of course, there's a connection here between um, Diderot's 
Dreadful Place, which were sort of bourgeois, um, catchy <laughs> comedies, and also the novel with its focus on middle class family domestic life, and the encyclopedia with its um, treating um, trades and trade knowledge and craftsmanship on a kind of equal level with topics like philosophy and theology, um, and the magazine's treatment of that as well. In the magazines, there's theology is right next to astronomy, and that's right next to glassmaking. There's, a, there's a, an implicit political project at work here, political shift. I think that's right. Um, it is, you know, people are always talking about this. This isn't the way we, we talk about the 18th century, but there's a, a, a lot of truth in this. It may be oversimplified at certain times. I, what I also like thinking about is this is not about, it's not about, um, you know, the working class, the, the servants. Uh, we're not talking about, you know, subalterns and exploited people at any, by any stretch of the imagination. If you look at the plates, you'll see these workers, You'll see occasionally, if you look very carefully, children working in workshops. There's a one of illustration I love of this child holding a little, uh, you know, bucket, and somebody's pouring lead into the bucket, um, which really, really reveals the, you know, the kind of some of the awful working conditions. But these plates were not designed to muckrake, you know, a la Emil Zola or or. Um, you know, the, you know the, the the jungle from the, the 20th century. These are really designed to praise the the people doing the work, and to to show pristine, idyllic images of the way that these manufacturing processes were carried out by these people who were were wonderful. Um, the same goes with the question of slavery. When the colonial manufacturing processes were shown there, we don't see the technology of slavery, which is quite significant, being part of the inventory of knowledge. That's one of the great ellipses in the encyclopedia. We think of uh, Thomas Clark Clarkson's images of uh, slave ships and the stowage plans where you see enslaved Africans all lined up like matchsticks. That's the image that we all have. That's a, poly a polemical image which was created in the 1780s. In the 1760s and 70s, that, was, that would not have even occurred to Diderot. In the 17, late 1770s, it certainly would have had he been redoing the encyclopedia because at that point, I think he would have understood that, that um, uh, this would be a real uh, interesting and effective political tool. Mm. Diderot's politics were, were um, they, I, he had much more um, modern democratic egalitarian politics than, than one would expect for somebody growing up under the Ancien Regime and then also uh, becoming a protégé of Catherine the Great's. Yeah, Diderot's politics are, of course, very complicated. Uh, you know, as I said yesterday, one of the, his main preoccupations, I mean, his, his real preoccupation to begin with was not really politics. Or if he was interested in politics, it, he was interested to the extent that he wanted the state to leave people like him alone. He wasn't questioning the uh, validity of the monarchy, really, uh, from, a, from a reformer's point of view early on. He was fascinated by the idea of social contracts as a kind of an abstract idea. He certainly wrote a, an article that ticked off Louis XV that I alluded to a little earlier. 
But he really wasn't a political animal like Rousseau was a political animal in the 1750s, you know, in the second discourse and ultimately in the social contract. Rousseau kind of takes off in that direction, although and although Rousseau had maybe even taken some of these ideas from Diderot or had discussed them at length with Diderot for a long time, but Rousseau is the one who becomes the political philosopher. But Diderot is fascinated by politics a little later in life, once he's finished the encyclopedia in the 1770s. And even before that, he becomes, um, falls under the spell, the false or the false impression that he can change the world by uh, ingratiating himself with, the, with a European despot, and that person is Catherine the Great. And he's thinking about, at this point, uh, helping Catherine the Great reform the Russian Empire. It's an astonishing uh, example of Diderot's hubris on a certain level. And so he's writing her after he becomes essentially her protege and, um, and, sh- and she becomes his patron and she uh, uh, sponsors his, his, essentially his retirement. And he's talking to her about reforming Russian society and, and, and subverting from within with these democratic principles and 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 in and making sure there's no slaves or you know the serfs essentially slaves in, in Russia, and you know this goes on for a while and then he visits her for uh, you know, several months in in Saint Petersburg in 1773, and by the time he is done with that trip, he is has uh, under no illusion that she in fact is a despot. And these soft little reforms that he's suggesting are falling upon deaf ears. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time this is going on, it should be the background. Background, of course, he's become very disenchanted with Louis the Fifteenth, and uh, he's really pulled back from from the idea of reforming democracy, of reforming, excuse me, monarchies from within. And he's thinking it may be time to uh, rethink the entire idea of monarchs, these monarchs who are ruling over 160 million people in Europe uh, based on the, this spurious idea of divine right. So I'm I'm aware that I could go on talking about Diderot for another three hours, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm aware that I'm um, you've already given very generously of your time. Is there an element of Diderot that we haven't covered, that that we haven't really covered enough, but that you'd like to just say a few words to emphasize? Um, What is your your favorite thing about him? And what is the thing that you would most, you think will most delight people um, who hopefully come and read his uh, writings after listening to this podcast? Well, I think that... I mean, at least among most of my friends, most of my friends are either agnostics or materialists. And I think it, there is a feeling that you, one uh, derives from reading Diderot of the joy of life and just an unfettered and, and unapologetic joy uh, that he took in life most of the time that is really interesting given the fact that he essentially, as you, you pointed out yourself, he essentially believed in the fundamental, ma- uh, uh, you know, believed in matter and only matter, and that there was no afterlife, and that you know life is this kind of fixed and, and finite thing, but certainly to make the best of it, and not in a simple carpe diem type way, but of a true appreciation of its of its wonder, of its mysteries, and uh, the amazing play that goes on in your head and you get this idea of dialogue of, of this interior 
not just monologue, but interior dialogue that goes on in his head at all times. I think we all have. It reminds me of that, you know, the bathhouse scene you're talking about. There's so many moments where he is penetrating uh, in his own kind of uh, subconscious and, and talking to us about how that works and, and how our mind works in, in a way that's really very perceptive. It's, he's a kind of a joy to be with. He's the, the li- lifetime companion, very much like Montaigne as well. Mm, thank you so much. Um, before I let you go, I want to talk to you and also to remind listeners of the new project that I am involved in um, with Clyde and Dane Rathbone, two hunky Australian brothers. We have uh, <laughs> Clyde and Dane founded, and I have now joined um, this uh, company called Letter. And it is a. Um, platform slash app. And the idea is that it is a place where you can engage in one-on-one letter exchanges with another person. So the your writing, it, it combines the advantages of the old-fashioned letter exchange, but it's conveniently in digital form. And it's also public. But unlike um, unlike Twitter, nobody else can like or comment or interject. Um, And it's also not like writing a Facebook status um, because you're not just sending it out into the world, not knowing if if anyone will reply. Um, It's meant for correspondence. And we're hoping to, um, we've had a few already, um, a few really wonderful um, intellectual exchanges on the platform. So we've had philosophers talking about uh, belief and talking about free will. We've had people talking about evolutionary, but we've had evolutionary biologists um, debating um, group selection theory. Uh, We've also got um, the most recent conversation that I featured, and I wrote a long feature article about it, was between a rabbi and a medical ethics activist um, about circumcision. And, I read that. <laughs> and um, we also have now a lot of just ordinary people writing to each other, people writing about weight loss, about bringing up their children, um, people exploring their childhood memories and exchanging, just exchanging ideas and notes. We had also, we have also a very long ongoing conversation between a one of the, the head of an Antifa chapter and a journalist who are talking about mm. Antifa. And um, we've also got, I'm also having a letter exchange about the sci-fi series Babylon 5. So we have all kinds of letter exchanges going on. It's completely free. I will put the link in the show notes. It's www.letter.wiki. And um, we would love to see more people sign on. And if you would like to write to somebody, but you, if you would like to write on a particular topic, but you don't have a pen pal, then we have a matchmaking service and we will try and hook you up with someone. And we're hoping that we're reaching out to a lot of academics and also to schools at the moment. We're hoping that people will use it as an intellectual platform too, that people may, scholars can write to each other or students can write to teachers across and the other end of the country or the other end of the world to exchange thoughts on a on a topic 
publicly, but with no trolls and third parties derailing. Yeah. Hey, trolls. Hey, trolls. Um, this is fascinating. Am I allowed to ask a question about this? Yes, of course. Please go ahead. So first, I have to tell you, I'm teaching only one class this, this semester, and it's on the epistolary novel. So I'm very much Ooh. drawn to the idea of, of letter writing and that the special thing that happens with sustained dialogue and also distance in time, right? So one mm. of the problems, advantages, yes, but the problems of Twitter is it's, it's so instantaneous that it, 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 it truncates uh, discussions and it also collapses things and it and it, it destroys you know uh, thinking on a more sustained level so you know I've uh, maligned and many people have maligned the loss of letter writing so this is a fabulous invention to, for that for you and your your um, your hunky uh, Australian mem to have, have, have created it's great <laughs> Thank uh, you. I don't understand is there's a collective side to it and an individual side to it so you have it sounds like you can set up really a one-to-one kind of an epistolary exchange with somebody who might be interested in, um, you know, collecting uh, Greek statues or something. And you might also have this kind of collective uh, type uh, general discussion that might be led by an academic or a public intellectual about a particular topic. So I don't understand how they yeah, work. We don't have general discussion on the letter site. So the letter site is just for one-on-one communication, but mm-hmm. all the letter exchanges are public. I don't know. We- so um, we are looking into having some private ones. So, for example, a school or university could have an internal um, part of the site. But at the moment, everything is public. So the idea is that you can then share them on Twitter, Facebook, or wherever you like to get more third-party commentary on that. And I'm also writing a series of um, feature articles which kind of take the letters as a jumping-off point. Um, and at the moment, I'm writing a guide to letter writing. So I'm probably going to revisit some of my 18th century letter writers for that um, to encourage people to kind of take back up with this, including people like me who hate writing by hand because um, I write like I've been to medical school. <laughs> so I much yeah. prefer the ease of typing and I, and I like it's it's nice that it's public and it's much it's a much easier place to kind of store your thoughts than on a twitter thread or a facebook status it's really hard to search facebook and twitter and to keep conversations right. and on letter they're all very neatly stored you can search find share very easily and i was going to say something else but now i have forgotten oh yeah and the other thing is that it's it's a very nice place to sort of just work out what you think on a topic. So it's much easier than, it's not like writing an article where you have to collect all your thoughts, organize, get your notes together, structure, and then write the thing. Um, it's a it's an ongoing exchange. So you can just be chatting and writing spontaneously and thinking as you go along. And it doesn't have to be on an intellectual topic at all. Um, some of mine are not. So... Um, so I just want to encourage everybody to go check it out. And right now we're hosting a competition. It's called the Impossible Conversations Competition. And um, there will be a, um, pro- the cash prize will be shared between the two correspondents who have the most interesting and productive discussion across a divide. So two people who strongly disagree on something important and controversial who have a 
a good conversation. We will split the prize between them. So the rabbi and the medical ethicist talking about circumcision is one of the entries, for example, that we've had. I got it. I didn't understand. I under, you alluded to that in that article, but I wasn't sure what, what how that, uh, or I, maybe someone was talking about the article, and I read the article, and I, I understood that this was some kind of, you know, a, a, a dialogue about a contentious subject, and that is, in fact, a very good subject, good example. Yes, so it's not a debate. We won't give the prize to whoever convinces us of their side of the argument. We want to see how good you are at negotiating this ground of talking to each other. We need more of that. Yeah, agreed. So please encourage everybody to to check it out. And maybe you should get your students to write an epistolary novel <laughs> in, on the platform. It would, should, yeah. I think it would be great. I think a, a novel um, is something we're missing from the platform. <laughs> that would be wonderful. I, I'm actually having them, uh, and I can stop talking here any second here, but I, I uh, am having them finish uh, the a novel by Mademoiselle Carrière um, called the Le- Le- Letters from Miss- Mistress Henley. And it, it ends in a very, very ambiguous fashion. And they have, their assignment is to finish off the, the novel with about four Ooh. or five or 10 letters, Ooh. which allow them to actually some something much more common. So we're, we're thinking along the same wavelength. Same, same lines. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Andy. It's been a real pleasure. I will link to everything we've talked about and alluded to. Uh, will be put in the show notes and timestamped, etc. Um, and is there anything that I haven't given you a chance to say that you want to say? I think we've covered a lot of territory and I thank you so much. My pleasure. Um, and thank you, thank you to Justin Ward, our sound engineer. And if you enjoy this podcast, don't forget the podcast is completely and solely listener supported. Go to our Patreon and send us the price of a cup of tea per month. And thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful week. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus. By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.